Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> the general pattern in the United States from the colonial period through the revolution, really into the late 20th century, has been... Uh, one of a country that's become more religious over time. Uh, when the United States was founded in this kind of historical moment, so this is the opposite, right, of what we th- uh, what what we usually think. Um, and it's not to say that folks weren't you know religious in certain kinds of ways. It's actually much more complicated than that. But in terms of most markers of religiosity that we use, like church attendance, you know, in 1776, maybe 17 percent of Americans went to church, um, and that rose over time um, through the 19th century, reaching a peak, you know, 1950s, 1960s, when over half of Americans went to church. So Christianity, you know, began in this country, organized Christianity was, uh, you know, in a relatively weak position, but got stronger over time. Hello, Faithful Politics listeners. This is your faithful host, Josh Bertram. And we have with us, of course, our ever political host, Will, how, who just is fresh back on his gubernatorial campaign with the, uh, with the slogan, make Virginia okay again. <laughs> yes, yes. Will, um, how, how is that going? Oh, it's going great. Yeah. Um, apparently, there's some issues about trying to run for governor on a non-election year. So once we get that figured out, I'm sure we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll be right back on the campaign trail again. Oh, right, 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 right. Well, maybe you could just go for the House this time. But um, we have as our guest today, Gene Zubovich. Gene is a assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Buffalo. He has uh, his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, as well as his MA and BA from the same institution. Uh, he has uh, his first book project called Before the Religious Right, Liberal Protestants, Human Rights, and the Polarization of the United States. He just wrote that, and we're going to be talking with him about that today. Thanks so so much for coming on. Jeannie's also written uh, many articles, several articles in, in, in uh, places as like the Washington Post and the Religion and Politics and, and several more. So thank you so much for coming on, Gene. Anything you want me to add? Like, did you do you swim with sharks or have you ever <laughs> anything else? Uh, no, that's plenty. No, I, I played the didgeridoo. <laughs> it's a fun fact about me. Do you really? <laughs> yeah. Dude, like we should the, just you know, talk about that. When yeah. I was leaving California, I was, um, you know, living in Berkeley at the time and I, you know, was moving to uh, Missouri and I was like, what's the most Berkeley thing I can learn how to do? And, you know, that's what, that's what came to the mind. Didgeridoo. So, wow. so, so, I, so you, I, you know how to do like the circular breathing and everything? <laughs> You know, not well, uh, not well, <laughs> but any more, any more practice. No, I, d- I actually didn't uh, stick with that super long, but I did take a couple of lessons. Lots of fun. Highly recommend it. It's always fun to learn an instrument. But um, thanks so much for having me here. Uh, pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, same here. So, you know, help our audience get to know you a little bit, like um, just maybe tell a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in writing about religion in America. Uh, I ask myself that every morning. <laughs> no, it's such a fraught topic. Yeah, no, it's kind of like a, a, an un- unlikely project. They never expected to be, you know, a historian of religion, let alone, you know, Christianity and liberal Protestantism, because I didn't grow up in, uh, you know, that community. It's totally foreign to me. Um, I was born in what was then part of the Soviet Union in present-day Belarus, and uh, my family and I, uh, came to the United States um, in the late 80s as uh, Jewish refugees. Um, and, you know, I think through that experience, I've always had kind of like a uh, an interest in um, an appreciation for, um, you know, international humanitarian organizations, including religious ones like the Hebrew International Aid Society, which is the one that got me over, helped, you know, get my family over to the States um, I had a, an appreciation for the politics of religious liberty um, because, you know, the uh, legislation that was crafted that helped get my family over to this country was um, 
you know, right, written in that kind of like religious liberty moment of the late 1970s. I'm happy to talk more about that, that really complicated, interesting history. So I guess in a sense, you know, biographically, I was always interested in this stuff, but um, the project on uh, liberal Protestantism was really uh, kind of came out of nowhere. I was surprised I didn't expect to be um, writing this book. That is so interesting. So how um, I have this quick one and then I, I have one follow up before Will comes in. But how uh, how did you end up writing it? Like, so what uh, obviously it's got some connection to your past, but what actually was the catalyst that made you write this book for this time? Yeah. So, you know, uh, long before I decided to choose this topic, I became, you know, I had already chosen to become a historian. I was in graduate school and I was in California at the time and I was looking for, uh, I was interested in kind of, you know, like race relations and, you know, uh, in California in the mid 20th century. And I stumbled upon a little book by a congregationalist minister that nobody has really any reason to have heard of. It's um, a guy named Buell Gallagher, um, who kind of was a household name for uh, a minute in the late 1960s. He was the president of the City University of New York um, uh, when the student protests took place and a couple of buildings got burned down. I think that was in uh, 89. So that was kind of his moment of fame, but he had a kind of a long religious career, really important one. Uh, and way back in 1946, he wrote this book um, that was probably like the most thoughtful critique of American racism and really global racism written by any white person in the United States prior to the 1960s. And, you know, I had grown up, um, uh, you know, in the wake of the religious right in the United States in the 1990s, where, you know, re religion in public was kind of synonymous with conservatism. And so, you know, looking back to this um, book um, and this person, uh, it was really surprising, right, to see, you know, uh, kind of public political religion wielded in this really interesting way that I didn't really uh, have any connection to personally. And I couldn't experience my everyday life because, you know, from what I understood, right, Christianity was this kind of monolithic conservative thing. And so, you know, I decided to dig deeper uh, into his uh, background. And, you know, through his biography, I kind of traced the links and opened up this kind of much broader world of, you know, the religious left, which wasn't just, you know, a kind of nominal small thing kind of hidden away in a corner right from the 1920s to the 1960s this was by far the most powerful popular well politically connected and influential group in the united states and so it's really not through a kind of personal connection or because i'm you know a member of this group it was really i did this project because i recognized its importance to uh, american history um, even world history, right? If you want to understand how, you know, we ended up where we are today, right? You have to go back before the religious right. You have to understand this earlier history of American religious liberalism. Wow, that's that's so fascinating. I, I'm going to push in and ask you to dig down on something that you mentioned there, because, of course, all of us have heard of the religious right. But the religious left, I thought that was an oxymoron. I didn't think that existed. I thought that was a contradiction in terms, you know, when I grew up. So talk to us. What is the religious left? Why is it important? What do they accomplish? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff. The Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. So the religious left, I mean, it's, you know, it's a broad group and it looks different and different moments uh, in time. So my little sliver of it is really the Protestant left. Um, these are, you know, for, for a long period of time in American history, the United States was not thought of as a Christian nation or a Judeo-Christian nation. It was, you know, lots of folks believed that it was a Protestant nation. Um, and so 
there were even though we didn't have a kind of established church in the United States like they do say in England right or in Germany um, we did have a kind of you know uh, a kind of uh, what one historian calls a moral establishment these you know mainline Protestant denominations uh, Presbyterians Methodists um, Episcopalians Congregationalists uh, and so on and so forth who um, you know, really felt like this was kind of their nation, and they were really culturally dominant up through the 1960s, going into the 1970s. Um, and so that's the kind of, uh, you know, that's the sort of religious background in the uh, in the United States, right? There was this kind of culturally predominant group, and within this group, um, many of its leaders, um, you know, uh, subscribe to what we think of as, you know, kind of left or politically liberal. Ideas. So between the 20s and the 60s, they were at the forefront of trying to diminish economic inequality. Um, they were really interested in, uh, you know, at least by the 1940s, trying to get rid of Jim Crow and segregation in the American South. Um, they were trying to find ways to make, um, you know, war less frequent and uh, to, you know, find alternatives to the Cold War. And so they're really politically um, important. It's, uh, you know, where this uh, all um, comes from, um, part of it came from liberal theology. So when I call Protestants liberal, sometimes I mean they're theologically liberal, which means that they read the Bible kind of historically, critically, uh, you know, in the context of its own time, almost like kind of a a living document that uh, requires interpretation and, you know, deep understanding. Um, they were also, you know, politically liberal or became that in the sense that uh, Franklin Roosevelt used the word uh, liberal, um, the president, you know, through the 30s into the 1940s, who by liberal, he meant, um, you know, somebody believes that the government has the responsibility to take care of American citizens, um, you know, especially economically. Um, and, you know, by liberal, he also meant um uh, you know, a, a liberal would be somebody who uh, was willing to kind of engage internationally um, to, you know, take part in international institutions to, you know, get America kind of involved in broader global politics. So that's kind of how I use those terms. You know, so, so you, you, you wrote a, you wrote an article in the Washington Post um, some time ago called Christian Nationalism is Surging. It wasn't inevitable. And I, I'd love for you to, unpack that but before you unpack it i i love for you to just to kind of define like like we hear this term christian nationalism um if you can just define what that term means um and you know if if the term has has morphed or evolved over the years like is our you know modern day christian nationalism definition the same as it was 30 years ago yeah, it's a, it's a really fantastic question. Um, it's a uh, it's a very fraught and divisive term among academics. Uh, my own take is that you know we used to call this kind of religious populism. Uh, in a couple of years, we'll call it something else. So um, you know what most people I think mean by religious nationalism is just you know right wing religious extremism, right? Like that's what we're worried about. You know, we're worried that a lot of folks who are you know. Um, uh, come out of a kind of, you know, evangelical or, uh, or Catholic culture are um, infusing that culture with, you know, racist ideas, homophobic ideas, you know, um, are abandoning democracy. And, you know, people who are talking about uh, uh, Christian nationalism are um, worried about it. So I think that's kind of like where that comes from. Um, in the most technical sense, the way that some sociologists use it, um, Christian nationalism, you know, means that people believe uh, somebody who's a Christian nationalist is somebody who believes that uh, the United States was founded as a Christian nation and essentially, you know, was founded by and for Christians and a kind of the country belongs to them. And what these sociologists have found is that um, people who believe that, right, also believe all these other things we really don't like, right? People who believe that also believe that, you know, um, you know, African-Americans aren't entitled to equality or, you know, Jews control the economy or, you know, um, uh, the, you know, Joe Biden stole the election or what have you, right? So um, the uh, people who use that um, in a kind of more uh, technical sense, um, right, are talking about this belief that, you know, um, 
this kind of misconception that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, um, and that uh, this people who hold that belief right are more likely to also believe these um, uh, these uh, other things. Uh, uh, but to your other point, this sense that this kind of right wing religious populism wasn't inevitable. Um, the kind of main point of that article was that you know for much of American history. Um, the you know this idea that the United States was founded as a Christian nation goes all the way back to the founding moment, right? Lots of people believe that all over time, right? Like not everybody was like marching on the Capitol, uh, even though they uh, they uh, believe that. And part of the reason was that you know the existence of this religious left, um, these you know liberal Protestants who are powerful, politically connected acted as a kind of counterweight in American politics, right? They could speak in very credible ways to, a, you know, a religious populace in the United States um, to counteract, right, at, at certain historical moments, these, you know, the conflation of Christianity and, you know, American nationalism. Um, and so they're really good at kind of balancing out our politics. Um, and it's only when the religious left um, got into trouble, started experiencing problems, and started experiencing a kind of demographic decline uh, starting in the 1970s. It was only then that, you know, the thing we today call Christian nationalism was able to kind of rise. You know, by the 1980s, you saw the rise of the new right and the Christian right. Uh, the 90s gave us the culture wars. And today that's kind of morphed into this thing, right, we're calling um, Christian nationalism. But uh, for much of the 20th century, at least, the Christian left and the Protestant left in particular was really good at tamping down. Christian nationalism and, and organizing and advocating against them. So it's almost like the yin and the yang. You know, you take, you get rid of the yang and then the yin, it, it is yin, yin and yang. Then the yin uh, takes it all over, you know? <laughs> the yang, the yan. I sound like I'm from New Jersey or something. A swing uh, and a miss, Josh. Swing and a miss. Yes, dude. Totally swing. But yeah. uh, no, that's, that's, I've always thought about like, because of course I was born in 85. So besides making me that young-ish, ish, I don't look young and I'm not really that young, but I was born in 85. So I grew up in the midst of, you know, if you're a Christian and you're political, you were on the right, right? But obviously that was a historical, a specifically American historical um, development, what can you help us gain some context by maybe tracing liberal Protestantism, which you gave somewhat of a definition um, with talking about kind of more liberal theologically. Um, but could you help us understand, like, you know, what happened maybe starting in the 19th century or something like that, moving on to the big picture so we can get a big picture of like, it started, it rose, it declined, and here we are today where it's like almost like the Democratic Party, like there aren't like, – like the association with Christianity is like almost like they want to avoid it. Maybe not that, – that's a blanket statement for sure, but kind of like how did that get to this, this, to this place where we are now? So the general pattern in the United States from the colonial period through the revolution really into the late 20th century has been uh, one of a country that's become more religious over time. Uh, when the United States was founded in this kind of historical wow. moment. Yeah, Sorry, I've yeah, never heard that before. So this is the opposite, right, of what we uh, what, what we usually think, um, and it's not to say that folks weren't, you know, religious in certain kinds of ways. It's actually much more complicated than that. But in terms of most markers of religiosity that we use, like church attendance, you know, in 1776, maybe 17% of Americans went to church. Um, <laughs> and that rose over time um, wow. through the 19th century, reaching a peak, you know, 1950s, 1960s, when over half of Americans went to church. So Christianity, wow. you know, began in this country, organized Christianity was, uh, you know, in a relatively weak position, but got stronger over time, right? So by the time you get to the late 19th century, it's sort of everywhere in the culture and the politics. Um, and, uh, uh, and you know, it, it's really widespread. Um, uh, and 
by the 19th century, you know, um, what some thinkers uh, in the United States and England and Germany, other places, some theologians um, start uh, arguing, right, is that essentially the way that American Christianity had developed over that period of time, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, was really based around an agrarian society. And all of a sudden, Protestant ministers, folks like Walter Rauschenbusch and, you know, G. Bromley Oxnam found themselves in places like, you know, Hell's Kitchen in New York or the railroad yards in um, uh, in uh, Los Angeles. And they were dealing with, you know, multi-ethnic, multi-racial populations, lots of immigrants, folks who were struggling, you know, physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. Um, and what these ministers started arguing uh, is that, you know, the idea of kind of in, like an individual notion of salvation um, is really just rooted in America's agrarian past. The idea that you can kind of lift yourself up by the bootstraps, that if you want to be a good Christian, just kind of focus on your own internal life and, you know, reform yourself. You know, if you're suffering, it's it must be because you made some bad choices. Like that was fine for farmers in the 1840s, but you know, now you've got cities, you know, you have uh, crime. And so they started paying attention to, you know, what they called, you know, social sin or collective sin. You know, um, today we'd call that, you know, like structural sin. Um, you know, thinking about like the ways in which the urban environment and, you know, um, the ups and downs of the economy and all this stuff shape people's lives. And so they started saying things like, you know, in order to, um, you know, create good Christians, we can't just minister to people's souls. We need to minister to their bodies in order to understand sin and salvation. We can't focus just on the individual. We need to look at the whole society. And a lot of these folks became activists. Um, they called themselves, you know, this was kind of the heyday of the social gospel movement, but it went by many names and uh, many norms. You know, Christians in the late 19th, especially going into the early 20th century, started, you know, setting up, um, uh, you know, schools, hospitals, um, what, what are called institutional churches that do more than just preach, right? Like they, you know, uh, they try to take care of you, you know, like every day of the week. Um, they started, um, you know, uh, creating social uh, kind of social safety nets when the government wasn't doing that. And they started advocating for the government to kind of do more to help these folks. Um, and so out of that movement came a bunch of different stuff. In the 1920s, 1930s, a lot of folks became, um, uh, you know, uh, Christian socialists. That was sort of one, one movement that came out of the social gospel movement. Um, other folks, you know, got involved in the pacifist movement, anti-racist movement, international work. It went in a bunch of different uh, directions. But um, all these things kind of lead back to this idea that, you know, Christianity is more than just about saving somebody's soul, right? You have to kind of minister to the whole person. And to understand the whole person, you have to kind of understand the society and think about the structures of society um, in which that person uh, is living if you want to kind of tackle their, um, you know, uh, both like uh, economic and social and spiritual problems. Hmm. Now, I, I know you're writing a book um, on like global history of U.S. culture wars. Um, and I, I'd love to get your take on, you know, where we at today um, regarding kind of U.S. culture wars and and if if it's applicable, its connection with like identity politics. Um, so I'd I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So one thing I should say first is that um, you know my first book before the religious right um, is also really thinking about this globally. You know, I started off um, on that writing that book, thinking it was going to be kind of a straight traditional political history of liberal Protestants from the 1920s to the 1960s. And it was going to focus on, you know, uh, uh, racism, uh, the economy and American foreign relations. But what I found out was that, you know, uh, a lot of the things that people were saying or doing really had to do with a kind of 
broader global context. Um, for me, the thing that really stood out was the importance of the ecumenical movement, uh, which started in the early 20th century. And all these liberal Protestants started trying to, you know, thought of it as kind of a theological um, injunction to unite Christians from across the world. And so they started building these international organizations, the International Missionary Council, the um, World Council of Churches. And through these organizations, they um, uh, they were meeting, you know, with uh, Christians from, you know, first for, predominantly from Europe, uh, but also from China and India, right, and different countries in Africa, Latin America. And so over time, it kind of became a global movement. And a lot of the ideas they, uh, that they came to hold, these kind of American liberal Protestants, right, came out of their interactions with, you know, Chinese or Czech or Ugandan. Uh, Christians. And so um, even way back, right, uh, in the heyday of American liberalism in the mid-20th century, um, international engagement, you know, international ecumenical engagement uh, was really important to not only American Christianity, but also uh, American politics. And so I think the same thing is true today, right? You know, with the rise of the Christian right, uh, we tend to think of um, you know, the culture wars and Christian nationalists and conservatives as, you know, uh, folks who are by definition, you know, um, anti-cosmopolitan people who are um, really just focused on, you know, like building up walls around America and defending it from, you know, forces uh, all across the world. But what I found is that, you know, actually the opposite is true. Uh, people who we tend to think of as kind of major new right figures, you know, Jerry Falwell and folks, uh, you know, Phil Schlafly actually spent a ton of their time cultivating allies overseas in a, in a different way than liberals where they were also kind of deeply cosmopolitan, right? Like they were paying attention to world events. They created international institutions. They spent a lot of time with, you know, kind of fellow believers, you know, politically and theologically um, across the world. And so they were also deeply shaped um, by, you know, the Christian right was also deeply shaped by their uh, global engagement. Wow. So, all right. I'm, I'm trying to get, make sure I understand what you're, what, what's going on here. So it's like there was this movement like this, this, this movement of Christians that be a society moved from agrarian to more urban and the problems changed and it wasn't moving fast enough. Maybe the government or even, even in the majority Christian maybe wasn't moving fast enough. So it created this need that was felt within now what we consider mainline churches where people now, um, where then they came out and they started to be champions of these various social issues. And so then they rise up and then there seems to be a decline. What, what happened? How did that decline happen? Where, where was the disconnect there? So going all the way back to 1908, um, the United uh, what becomes the United Methodist Church there at the time the Northern Methodists pull out the put out this kind of this social creed, and at that moment um, they uh, along with other twenty or thirty other denominations organized the Federal Council of Churches, which becomes the National Council of Churches, and um, and these mainline denominations and these ecumenical institutions they create are really pushing ideas that are going to become much more common politically decades later. They start calling for social security, right, for like young people, you know, uh, poor people and elderly people. They're talking about universal health insurance, you know, unemployment relief, right? So uh, in a lot of ways, these liberal Protestants early in the 20th century are articulating, right, in, through a kind of Christian lens, what later becomes, you know, the New Deal state, kind of, you know, big government, right, interventionist government that is trying to take care of people from, you know, cradle to grave, right? That's the, that's the aspiration. And from, you know, the 1930s going into the 1960s, we have a lot of that, right? And, um, but beginning in the 1970s, you know, politically liberalism is kind of on the ropes. You get the rise of Ronald Reagan, um, and slowly but surely, right, a lot of these kind of social welfare programs get, um, uh, taken apart. And, um, and so, you know, folks like Ronald Reagan, 
uh, get into office in the 19, you know, he's elected in 1980, goes into office in 81. And he's arguing, right, like, you know, we need a smaller state, government should stay out of your business, you know, let capitalism handle, uh, uh, handle everything. And so there's a kind of religious analog to this as well, right, in the same way that, you know, um, the you know, rise of religious liberalism helped create the rise of political liberalism, um, the rise of uh, the Christian right in the 1970s helped, you know, propel Ronald Reagan into office um, and help, you know, make conservatism kind of a mainstay of American politics. But one of the things that had to happen before that was that the religious left had to kind of get into trouble. Uh, and there are a lot of really complicated sociological reasons why um, that happens. Um, in, in a nutshell, um, the uh, leaders of these mainline organizations and, you know, the National Council of Churches and other ecumenical organizations, um, you know, start moving to the left um, you know, over time. And so by the 1960s, they're in the front lines of um, the civil rights movement. Um, they're, you know, many of these ministers are marching with Martin Luther King Jr. and um, John Lewis and Selma. Um, they're leading the protests against the Vietnam War. Um, they're advocating for um, uh, anti-colonial movements and decolonization in Africa. Um, and what they find is that, you know, the, many of these ideas, right, are like really unpopular with everyday churchgoers, um, that, you know, for all the, um, moral seriousness they've shown for all their commitment to these values, you know, it really didn't trickle down to the pews in the ways that they had expected. Um, so one of the things that was always true in American Protestantism, uh, became much more evident in the 1960s, which is that there's a gap in values between the clergy and the laity, right? Like, you know, um, the uh, clergy, which is going to, you know, Union Theological Seminary in New York City um, and reading, you know, um, you know, Marx in, in seminary or whatever, right? Like, you know, like really like engaging with a whole world of ideas, right? are then, you know, sent to a small town in Iowa and their congregation doesn't, you know, uh, understand why, you know, their minister is marching with MLK. Um, and so what happens is, is that there's a kind of clergy, uh, clergy lady gap in values that by the 60s widens into a chasm. And so a lot of the more conservative ladies start rebelling against the clergy, start trying to kick them out. Um, they start withholding funds from um, and donations from the church. Um, so there's a lot of kind of financial trouble that these organizations get into because of the kind of rebellion of, you know, uh, people in the pews, as well as their conservative activist allies. Um, the other thing that happens is that a lot of the, you know, young people in the churches, um, that the that do get reached by these values, you know, um, who grew up in a, you know American Baptist church or a Congregationalist church, um, and they are, have absorbed the values of the clergy, who are saying, you know, you have to be anti-racist if you want to be a good Christian. You have to, uh, you know, really take poverty seriously, you know, if you want to be a good Christian. Um, you know, they're finding the their they absorb those values, they believe in them, uh, they hold them to be true, but they're not finding them uh, in their home churches, right? Like the conservative, you know, all the conservatives around them, right, aren't expressing these things. And so many of these young folks starting in the 1960s and accelerating into the 1970s, you know, um, take their Christian values, right? The values they grew up with and were instilled in them through their Protestant churches, and they find other avenues to express those things, right? So, you know, in the 1930s, if you wanted to, you know, fight poverty or racism, you know, most of your choices, especially if you're a woman, uh, a white middle class woman, to do that was through church-based organizations. But by the 1960s, you know, there's the Peace Corps, there's human rights organizations, there's, you know, the NAACP, there are all kinds of, you know, quote-unquote secular organizations that young folks find themselves drawn to because they see them as better expressions of uh, Christian values than what they see in their, you know, uh, in the churches in which they grew up, right? Some of those uh, people, you know, go and uh, some of those young people go and, you know, do their activism or human rights work or charity work, and they maintain their membership in their, uh, in their church. But 
others, um, right, you know, go uh, and start working for these organizations and then never look back and they start disaffiliating. So starting in the 1970s, mainline Protestant churches start losing funds and they start getting older, they start losing their young people and they start shrinking in number, right? So by the time you get the rise of the Christian right in the 1970s, uh, these can mainline, more liberally inclined denominations that have been the source of the religious left in this country, or at least one of the most important ones, um, is shrinking, right? Just as the Christian right is expanding. That makes so much sense. I, I love the way that you're explaining that. It's, it's, uh, it's so fascinating. And one thing that you said that hit me is when you said that, as has always been the case, there is a gap between the clergy and the laity. And I would agree with that. The clergy seem to have, because I am clergy, um, and we seem to have these idealized versions of what people that aren't in our, in our ministry or aren't professionals should be doing. Um, and I've experienced that and I've lived that. So that's so fascinating. But it tied in my mind this idea of how connected, interconnected politics and theology is. So so here's what I mean. It seems like it, it, I'm just going to point something else and I'll ask you to give your in, your your take on it. So it seems like a, a, a conservative today might be considered a liberal 100 years ago or 200 years ago, meaning that someone that had our, like a normal conservative, most of the people I talk to, if I were to say, should um, uh, blacks and whites be able to intermarry? I, I don't know anyone that would say no. I don't personally know anyone that they no. Of course, I'm sure there are people that are. I would feel that way that call themselves Christians or maybe feel whatever. I'm not the one that judges that, but they, um, but you know, that, that, but that is a change. That's a shift is, is what I'm saying. And it seems like these liberal conservative, they're, they're liquid fluid terms. They change over time. So, but at the same time, it seems like our politics follow our theology or vice versa. I, I don't know, but they're so linked. Um, like, like for instance, if you look at like, I could probably guess if someone were to say that they lean left theologically, I could probably guess and probably be right many times, nine out of 10, eight out of 10 times on what they feel about a certain topic, say abortion, same sex marriage, um, you know, social security, uh, big government, whatever, big versus small, whatever it is. What what have you found in your research? Has that has that been true? That you've seen that that theology and politics basically go hand in hand, um, but they change over time. I'm I'm just curious to find your your insights on that. Yeah, so I think for much of the 20th century and you know into the present as well. There's been kind of like a two-party system, right, in American religion. Um, and, you know, um, in the same way as there's a kind of two-party system in American politics. And so what you find is that, you know, if you've like talked to people, you know, imaginary people in the 1940s about, you know, what they believe, um, uh, you know, at a moment uh, when the United States was divided between, you know, kind of liberal ecumenical Protestants on the one hand and evangelical Protestants on the other, you know, liberal ecumenical ones being all the both theologically and politically liberal evangelicals uh, being predominantly conservative, right, in the way that we would understand those terms today. Um, so, you know, if you talk to most folks, right, like they would, you know, agree with like a mixture of, you know, both of um both of those things in the same way as if you talk to some Democrats and Republicans, you know, they would like uh, actually be kind of, you know, like their actual views um, would, uh, uh, you know, would like uh, be messy and complicated and kind of be all over the political spectrum. Right. But, you know, with the political system, you kind of have to, uh, you know, right. And come November, you kind of have to vote right one or the other. We don't have quite, the same thing in our religious politics, but at the same time, you know, there's certain moments, you know, of conflict where people kind of have to uh, choose sides, right? So even though kind of theological liberalism and theological conservative conservatism doesn't really capture, right, like everybody in this country today or in the past, um, 
they're kind of two poles, right? They kind of pull people in one direction uh, or another. Um, and so that's kind of my starting point for um, thinking some of the stuff. But Josh, you're absolutely right that, you know, every, you know, theology, right, is, you know, uh, a reflection, right, a kind of engagement, you know, for Christians, it's an engagement with the Bible from the standpoint of your own kind of social and cultural world, right? Like, you know, when you are, when you open up those pages, right, you are bringing to those pages in part, right, like your own upbringing, you know, your family history, your social environment, your views, your, uh, you know, all this kind of cultural baggage to that experience. And that's always been the case, right? You know, going all the way back to the writing of the Bible, right, which at least in part kind of reflects, you know, some of the kind of cultural attitudes of the era and the, you know, historical context and what people knew and didn't know at the time. So this is kind of a perennial problem. And it's always, right, there's always been this kind of intermixture, right? There was never a moment when, you know, religion and politics or church and state, you know, were, uh, were really separated uh, uh, in this country, right? You know, people uh, mix these two things together. Uh, I think one of the, uh, you know, one of the points I try to hammer home in uh, my book is that, you know, um, oftentimes communities, religious communities, people who think of themselves as primarily, you know, revolving around theology, right, you know, that they are also constituting themselves and organizing themselves and creating an identity for themselves um, that are, you know, political, right, that like they're um, the way in which they draw boundaries and, you know, um, uh, say like, here's who we are, and that's different from them over there, right, that that's just as much, you know, uh, what we would call political as it is religious, right? Just as much uh, ideological as theological, if that makes sense. You know, I, I, I really, I really appreciate um, your, your level of insight because I, I think it's, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's fascinating being that you're, you're not necessarily a member of, um, of faith and you're kind of like outside looking in which I think gives a much better and objective um, view, like um, of like who Christians are. Um, I mean, like, so I'm I'm a believer. I'm a Christian, and I have lots of atheist friends, and um, they're they're loving. They're good people, and they they tell me stuff that like, hey, do you know that like your ilk you know, are doing X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, yeah, they're all crazy, you know, like, but. Um, but I'm but I'm curious as as a as an observer of religion and U.S. history, um, uh, and I, I hope this isn't going to put you on the spot, but it probably will be. Um, like, what would you say are the are the top three contributions of you know I don't know uh, Protestant religious religious people um, in the country um, going going as far back as you like. And then what, what would be sort of like the, the top three, you know, um, I don't know what's, what's the right word to use? Like, oops, negative things. Yeah. Negative oops, things. Yeah, <laughs> Tap. No faux, faux pas. Yeah. Faux pas. Yeah. Yeah. Faith faux pas. It's such a interesting question. Um, <laughs> the United States is such a, culturally Christian uh, country um, and a culturally Protestant country in particular. Um, and you kind of see this when you're not like a, you know, when you're not yourself a Protestant, you kind of start seeing it everywhere. You're like, right. Like, you know, it, it, I guess in a sense, you know, like I wrote this book because I was trying to figure out like the country that I emigrated to and the country mm. that, you know, like, right. It's, you know, the uh, it's sort of like the air, the folks breathe around here. And so, you know, the, um, the hard thing to do is to say, is you know, is this particular thing the way it is because it's Protestant or because it's American, right? Like, yeah. did Protestantism shape America or did America shape 
Protestantism because the relig the way in which the religion is practiced here um, is really different, right, from other countries. Just you know, like I'm right now, you know, ten minute drive from Canada, and um, it, the religious landscape and what evangelicalism looks like in that country is really different. Even though there are a lot of kind of cultural and you know political similarities between the two countries, and so even you know like a few miles, right, can like make a really big difference. Um, and so th this is kind of the puzzle that people have been struggling with, right? Um, you know, how to disentangle America's Protestant heritage with, you know, the, the um, heritage of American politics, geography, you know, history of settler colonialism, slavery, um, warfare, right? Like all the all these things that make America what it is, suburbanization, all these lawns, you know, like how do we like separate uh, uh, these things out? And, you know, for me, um, yeah, that's kind of, it's kind of an impossible uh, thing to do. And so, you know, you, the starting point, right, is, you know, like, you know, these things are intertwined. They've always been intertwined. Um, and, uh you know, there's no way to kind of uh, pull them out to sort of identify, like, here are the specific things that, um, uh, you know, Protestants have contributed to the history of this country. Having said that, you know, people have talked about, um, you know, the promotion of individualism, the creation of um, civil society, meaning kind of like, um, you know, non-governmental um, affiliations and associations has been kind of a, a Protestant contribution. Um uh, you know, this, uh, the importance of, uh, things like conscience, uh, you know, kind of a very, uh, very Protestant idea, um, the, uh, missionary impulse and, you know, the way in which, um, you know, helping sort of, you know, heathens, you know, across, uh, the world, you know, which is the way they would put it in the 19th century is kind of translated to, you know, today's humanitarian and human rights movements. Um, so, you know, the list sort of goes on and on and on. The negative side, you know, there's a long history of anti-Catholicism, anti-Semitism, uh, you know, religious bigotry, as well as the ways in which, you know, Protestantism, like many religions, has gotten uh, entangled with slavery, racism, you know, um, uh, economic inequality, and so on and so forth, right? Which just kind of goes back to my original point, right? Is like, you know, if you start looking for Protestantism in American history, you find it everywhere. You know, there's the good stuff, there's the bad stuff, right? It's all around you. Yeah, you know, I was thinking when you're talking, because um, I, I wanted you to drill in a little bit on... Um, drill in a little bit on racism and the culpability of the Amer specifically American Protestant church with, or even evangelical church. You could talk about the separation there, liberal and, and Protestant. Cause I'd like to think that I would have been a, you know, I would have been an abolitionist. I like to think that I would have been, you know, marching with Martin Luther King, but I don't know. And maybe, maybe probably not. I, I have no idea depending on how I was, you know, where I grew up. But my, my, when we're digging in on this, I guess, because one thing I hear a lot, or, or it's, it's a basically a condemnation of Christianity because of its involvement with slavery. And my question, or, or what I'd like you to, you know, speak into is you know, you have these two sides, right? The people who oppose and the people that supported slavery probably both said they were Christian um, in that time, or at least came out of that. Um, what's what? Describe a little bit of this of this the the uh, relationship that Christianity in America has had with racism and slavery. So I hate to be the bearer of bad news, and I say this not as a form of judgment, Josh, but um, odds are, overwhelming odds, is that you nor I would have been abolitionists um, or <laughs> civil rights activists. And the reason, and the reason that that's the case, is because these were very small, narrow, radical movements at the time. Right? People really thought of these folks as radicals. Um, who 
after the fact got um you know accepted as like obviously being right right like of course slavery should have ended of course segregation is a bad thing we can tell ourselves today but um the folks who were um uh, participating in these movements were thought of and i think you know rightly so from the perspective of the era as radicals and so these were small minority movements you know oftentimes of very little support which is part of the reason why you know folks that were mar marching with martin luther king jr um right like face so much flack <laughs> uh yeah and so you know um uh so uh that, that's sort of you know one observation that i have um yeah, you know, people talk about the history of American evangelicalism and its relationship with um, uh, with slavery. It's, you know, it's complicated. Um, uh, some folks argue that at first, as evangelicalism spread through the American South, um, you know, the, these are like the Methodists and Baptists primarily, um, that they at first were kind of, you know, um, uh, against slavery or uninterested in slavery, but over time kind of adapted to the cultural norms of the region you know, um, then became um, supporters of slavery, theological um, racists, essentially. Um, and, you know, other scholars dispute this, that, you know, okay, there was never like an initial moment, actually, like, there was a lot of support for uh, slavery from the very beginning. Um, and this is, of course, among the white community, right? You know, the Christianity also spread um, among uh, enslaved folks and the freed uh, black people in the antebellum South um, and had very different sort of uh, iterations, right? It looked different, it sounded differently. And, you know, the ideas that um, uh, African-Americans were, uh, theological ideas they're passing among themselves, right, were like very different from what their white overseers wanted them um, uh, to believe. By the mid 20th century, um, you know, the relationship of the civil rights movement was also complex. Um, the uh, kind of liberal mainline Protestant churches were among the very first large white organizations to condemn segregation. Um, so lots of folks in the 1930s and 1940s were saying like, you know, racism is a bad thing. Racial prejudice is a bad thing. We shouldn't be prejudiced. Um, but very few people were saying, Okay, and that means we should get rid of segregation in the South. It's, it's a system that had to go. And so the Federal Council of Churches and some of these mainline Protestant denominations were um, some of the very first large national organizations to specifically condemn Jim Crow, to say segregation's got to go, um, uh, in the United States. You know, really just the American Communist Party got there first. Uh, which kind of gives you a sense of like how radical of an idea this was in, you know, 1946 when the Federal Council of Churches uh, proclaimed it. At the time, most evangelicals um, supported uh, segregation in the United States. Um, by the 1960s, uh, American liberal Protestants were, you know, many of them were on the front lines of the anti-segregation movement, right? You know, joining the Southern Christian Leadership Council and uh, lobbying for the passage of the um, Civil Rights Act um, and thinking, right, starting to think more broadly and expansively about um, segregation and the problem of racism. They started talking about reparations in the late 1960s. They started talking about colonialism in the late 1960s. They were thinking about, you know, um, segregation, not just as uh, something that will kind of end and then we're done and, you know, hooray, we're equal, right? But kind of a long-term process requiring restitution and economic equality and political liberation and autonomy and letting African-Americans decide for themselves how, you know, they want to, in what way they want to be a part of the United States. Um, by which point, um, American evangelicals had come around to the earlier positions that these liberal Protestants have taken, which is that, um, you know, essentially racism is a problem, but it's a problem of individual hearts and minds that can be solved through education, uh, not government action. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the ways in which, right, um, uh, evangelicals in opposition to kind of liberal ecumenical Protestants started positioning themselves as kind of centrists, right? You know, we are the folks who believe in racial liberalism, you know, uh, individual, it's up to the individual person to get rid of um, racist beliefs, 
Um, you know, we don't actually need to like restructure society uh, in any way. And look at all these radicals, right, among these mainline churches who are, you know, demanding reparations, aren't they um, terrible, right? So evangelicals uh, in the 1960s, the evangelical movement was really good at using these politics, right, including racial politics, kind of wedge issues, right, to kind of insert themselves into uh, American politics and to kind of gain a political and cultural advantage over their liberal opponents. Man, I have so many questions, but I know we're coming to the place where we're going to have to, we're going to have to bring it to an end. But so, all right, I want to, I want to phrase this. I want to phrase it correctly. Well, I guess one real quick one, were there any can like what, were there conservatives? I mean, I know you said they kind of adopted the previous liberal stance, but were there, were there any anyone that you would consider a conservative Christian of the time that was on the leading edge of any of these social reforms? So lots of folks were um, super complicated, and it's hard to kind of sure yeah. pin, pin them left or right. Uh, one example is. Um, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who you know is a hero today to both the religious left and the religious right. Um, right. Kind of hard to pin him down. A former, um, a former pacifist and Christian socialist who, by the 1950s, was kind of a leading um, Cold War hawk. Um, there is uh, John Foster Dulles, remembered as kind of the right wing, kind of hawkish Secretary of State under um, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, who in the 1930s and the early 1940s was leading the Protestant charge to create a world government, which, you know, eventually kind of became less than that, the United Nations, but he played a really big role and liberal Protestants played a really big role in the creation of the UN. And, you know, he kind of took a turn and, uh, and then there are figures like Walter Judd, uh, a congressman from Minneapolis, one of the most important, um, players in um, immigration reform in the United States was one of the leading figures wow. in getting rid of Chinese exclusion, Japanese exclusion laws from American immigration policy and opening up the American immigration system to um, people who were, um, uh, you know, for, to refugees and, you know, folks from Asia who have been historically barred from the United States. Well, at the, si at the same time, he was an absolute economic libertarian. Um, and when his denomination, the Congregationalists, who were in the process of merging with another denomination to create today's United Church of Christ, um, during that moment, he led a kind of breakaway denomination who were opposed to both the liberal, you know, the, uh, the, the economic politics and the um, ecclesiological politics of his religious community. And he kind of led, you know, 100,000 people and started a new denomination. Um, and so folks like Judd, along with Reinhold Nieper and um, John Foster Tullis, right, it's hard to kind of pigeonhole them in this kind of spectrum of, you know, left and right politics in the United States, right? Because at certain moments, you know, they went uh, in different directions, combined ideas sure. and movements that, um, you know, wouldn't fly in our contemporary polarized moment, but from their own perspective, made perfect sense to them. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, so from outside, um, and this is kind of the last big question and then a small one, small one to end smallish small. Um, who knows? You know what I mean? I, sometimes I think it's a small question and then it becomes like way bigger than I thought. So, but from an outside perspective looking in. Cause I like to think, you know, people like Christianity is unique. You know, Christianity is the way, you know, I, I, I believe Jesus is the way personally, like I believe relationship with them. Right. So I believe those things very deeply for everybody. I think that's, you know, me, you, you know, will, especially will, I mean, everyone, you know, um, that's what I believe. So I like to think, Oh man, like, um, we're not like everybody else. You know, we're unique. We're God's chosen people, blah, whatever. From this outside perspective, looking in, what has, like, how has that shaped your view of Christianity? 
because, or even your view of Jesus, maybe it has, maybe it has, maybe those are totally separate things. And and I know they are historically, but how's that? Because you know more about Christianity, the Bible, I mean, probably definitely than me, you know, more about the history of Christianity. I don't know about the Bible and I've studied the Bible a lot, but you know more about that than almost all of the pastors in America, 99.9% of them about the history of Christianity. And I've seen it and I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. How is, how is this study shaped your view? How did you view Christians before and Christianity before? How do you view it now? Much as you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have uh, mixed feelings. Um, you know, the kind of Will's framing was uh, was really helpful here, you know, kind of the good and the bad, right? Uh, you know, I've, I've come to appreciate, you know, on both sides of the political spectrum, you know, the sincerity with which people, you know, carry on their work. I've also, you know, as I wrote a book about religious politics, you know, I've also understood that, you know, most pastors' lives are profoundly much more boring than, you know, what I write about, right? It's, you know, like trying to figure out how to like fix a leak on the roof or, you know, just going and like spending time with somebody who's, you know, in trouble, um, you know, getting a coffee with, you know, a person who just needs a little bit of like counseling, basically. And so, um, you know, uh, I've come to also appreciate in addition to, you know, uh, sort of the good and the bad, right? It's just, you know, right, like uh, a lot of the kind of lives and work of, you know, both believers and um, and ministers is actually like pretty mundane, right? And doesn't relate very deeply to, you know, the kind of stuff um, that I write about. Um, uh, the, the question, Josh, that you raised about like the missionary impulse in the sense that, you know, right, like everybody has to, you know, it's kind of got one of the fundamental, you know, theological tenets, yeah, right? Sure. Christianity, like, you know, Islam and Buddhism, right? It's a missionary, missionary religion. Yeah. 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 And sort of what, what that's meant, right, is is really interesting. I think that's had like a really profound function in American history um, that, you know, the impulse to, you know, go out and convert the entire world, right, also like leads you to go out into the world. And, you know, you're a missionary in 1910 and you're a Northern Presbyterian. And, you know, you're in a village in rural China somewhere and you're trying to explain, right, the ecclesiological differences between Presbyterians and Congregationalists and why these villagers really care, right, about <laughs> about this thing that you really care about, right? Because, you know, you were, right, like from this very specific community. Uh, and, of course, they don't. And they don't understand uh, these differences. And so one of the things that, you know, the missionary movement did was it, you know, uh, created a kind of imperative to, right, like break down these barriers between American denominations, right? Um, that didn't so much happen in the United States, you know, that like pro uh, the, the Congregationalists and Presbyterians became friends, right? They first started cooperating overseas, right? Because people they were dealing with didn't care about these denominational differences. It made no sense in the Chinese or Indian or um, Kenyan contexts. And so, and this sense that, you know, actually, maybe we should break down some of our boundaries was then brought back home into the United States. And so that kind of sense of ecumenism, right, you know, really developed overseas through the kind of missionary encounter and, you know, tied into in very interesting ways um, uh, the uh, into debates about American religious pluralism. Well, maybe if like denominational differences don't matter, maybe like Catholics are OK, too. Uh, maybe if really like stretch things out, maybe we can like invite Jews into the public culture of the United States, right? And so there are ways in which, you know, this thing that's like feels very uniquely Christian then kind of becomes part of a broader dialogue about American acceptance. Um, the missionary movement was also like full of really interesting contradictions, you know, in the 1920s at a time when um, uh, most women were barred from any profession in the United States, essentially, except for teachers until they got married and um, homemakers, right? Um, there were, in the 1920s, more American women um, uh, working as doctors in India overseas than there were back home in the United States, right? Many of these women were what we would today, you know, call like folks who never wanted to get married to men, what today we would call lesbians. Um, and so the missionary movement and this kind of impulse to 
you know, go out and convert the world seems pretty straightforward on the face of it. Uh, but in practice, when you go out and start talking to the world and encounter the world's diversity and set up institutions and have these discussions and debates, right? You know, oftentimes you find yourself um, kind of transformed, right? Um, and so even, you know, things that seem like really fundamental tenets of Christianity, right? Like, you know, other folks should become Christians. Actually, in practice, historically, really, really complicated really nuanced, have all kinds of effects on both Christian and American history that you wouldn't uh, necessarily um, expect. And so I guess all that is to say, one of the things I've come away with um, in studying the history of Christianity is just how malleable um, it is, just how it's much it's able to transform and absorb and change um, over time, right? You know, the Christianity we had 100 years ago is not... Uh, what we have today, and uh, you know, uh, I'm, historians are not in the business of predicting, but I'm pretty certain that in a hundred years, Christianity in the United States and in the broader world is going to look really different from uh, from what it looks like today. I think I can say that with some confidence. As long as Jesus tarries, one of those old phrases. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw that in. It made me think of it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gene. What are you working on now? We mentioned your books. How can people follow you, get involved in your research? How can they check out what you're doing? Yeah, so when I'm not teaching classes at the University of Buffalo, I'm occasionally writing for um, you know, public journals. You can find my um, public writings at genezubovich.com, G-E-M-E-Z-U-B-O-V-I-C-H. Um, I wrote a book called Before the Religious Right, available at you know, local bookstores, Amazon, wherever you get your books. Um, and um, yeah, you know, uh, Google me, uh, find my email, send me feedback. I'd love to uh, connect and chat with all of you. Uh,